Why is it so hard to retain talent? This question haunts businesses. Conventional wisdom and much-touted innovation never solved the riddle of rampant employee transients. However, there is a method which proves itself efficient generation after generation. This approach is far from groundbreaking, yet has received so little attention that it might as well be. Some of those who worked closest to Queen Elizabeth II remained on staff for over 60 years. Otherwise, her household enjoyed a rate of labor retention which vastly exceeded the U.S. average. Find out about Her Majesty's pursuit of workplace excellence in my latest book, Follow the Leader, What the Business World Can Learn How Queen Elizabeth Managed and Served Others. Available now on Amazon. Just type in Joseph Cotto and follow the leader. It may be what you need to take your business to the next level. Top of the evening, everyone. I'm Joseph Cotto. Joining me tonight is Keith Preston. Keith, how's it going? I'm good. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to feature you on the program. And Keith did, was interviewed for uh, the book you just uh, saw uh, a featurette for. Uh, obviously, the book is, uh, as I said on a previous episode, or I think I said it on a previous episode. Anyhow, the book is essentially my doctoral dissertation uh, for business administration. So we're going to get into a few things tonight. We're going to start off discussing uh, some stuff which Keith uh, brought up during uh, my chat with him for the dissertation. And then we're going to address something very interesting about social conservatism in the United States, something which might well be unexpected, uh, but it's going on all the same. Uh, but uh, starting off with uh, the matter of, uh, well, actually, one of the matters that were brought up for the dissertation, Keith, nowadays, people do not work as long at any uh, single job site as they once did. They are, much, they are much more transient. They go from employer to employer, and there are many different reasons for this. Uh, in your opinion, what is the foremost reason? Well, labor and capital are both much more transient now, um, and people are much more mobile. Um, I, people, for example, are more much more likely to, to relocate in order to find better employment opportunities, which was rare in past generations. Nowadays, that's more feasible due to everything from you know economic circumstances to transportation technology to communications technology and things like that. So keep in mind that only uh, you know 25 years ago, uh, if you moved to another town, you would have to pay for long-distance phone calls just to call your uh, relatives back wherever you came from. You know, which means you're going to be spending hundreds of dollars a month on uh, on long-distance phone calls. Um, and you know, this, you know, there was no email, there was no FaceTime, there was no Skype. You know, uh, so communications technology, I think, has really revolutionized the labor force and the business world. Um, also, um, capital is more mobile. Uh, it's very easier for businesses to relocate to different places. Uh, if they, for example, discover that a different state might have a better uh, tax rate uh, and is more business friendly, they can go there. They can go to another country if they want. Um, so all of these things contribute to a much higher uh, employee turnover rate. Um, I think some of it has to do with the fact that there are more types of jobs available now. Uh, you know, in terms, you know, there are certain types of positions that just simply didn't exist in 
estimate. And again, that's also due to changes in the economy and technological development. The growth of the public sector is a big part of it. Public sector employment is more of an option in many uh, places. Uh, and uh, you know, all of these things are um, things that have caused labor to become more transient. Absolutely. Yeah. And before, before I go any further, I should, uh, I think most people who watch the show uh, know uh, who you are and what you do. But for those who do not, you are a professor, uh, you are an anarchist. And I did interview you uh, because you have a background in human resources. And of course, you have great sociological insight. You're one of our time's most innovative sociologists, if I dare say so myself. Uh, Keith, anything to say? about your work where people can find your stuff anything else that might come to mind yeah i have a website called attackthesystem.com just like it sounds attackthesystem.com uh and from there you can order copies of my books and you can find essays i've written and all kinds of things uh that's the best place to go got it and and uh i was going to say actually before we go on uh your background in human resources uh how does that inform how you view the labor market today. I mean, obviously you have a great deal of academic insight on what's taking place, but you also have a lot of practical uh, experience. You have a lot of experience, which gives you practical knowledge. Uh, so how does your uh, job history relate to how you view what's taking place? Well, I was a, a regional human resources director for two different co companies, uh, one for about five years and one for about four years. So I got almost a decade of experience in human resources management. Uh, when I was in human resources, I was also doubled as a marketing director um, in some, some at some periods. Um, so my my thing was uh, my responsibilities were to largely to recruit and train professional sales and marketing people. That was really the bulk of what I did. Uh, so that definitely gave me a lot of insight um, into uh, the labor market because um, I, for one thing, the, the fields that I was in were fields that have a fairly high turnover rate uh, in terms of employees and, and uh, things like that. And also some of the companies I was in, we would use a lot of independent contractors and subcontractors, and I was uh, in charge of you know, setting up arrangements with them also. Um, but I think a, a problem that a lot of companies have today, and, and employee turnover is, is a serious problem in many companies. Um, Many, many, in fact, I, um, I've, I've worked with other people in the academic world who are concerned about this issue of how, you know, how can a company engage in recruiting and training and, and human resources management in a way that you don't have this exorbitant um, turnover rate because that's, that's, that increases your inefficiency in a lot of ways. It's, it makes labor costs more expensive, uh, your overall level of productivity, efficiency internally is generally going to be lower if you have a huge turnover rate in an organization. So uh, people in the business world are interested in this, and then that spills over to the academic world because, you know, people who, like you who are specializing in the academic aspect of this. Um, so it is a problem. Um, and I think that a real issue is that employers and organizations, um, you know, because we're past the time period in history where an individual employer is the one that's really making all these decisions. These are really more systemic problems in involving organizations where you have a multiplicity of individuals who perhaps are making policies and, and engaging practices that may or may not be beneficial. But a problem is that organizations, I think, haven't really found a way to adjust 
to the changes that have taken place in the economy in terms of technology, in terms of the transients of labor, and all of the other things that are involved in that. And, in, and instead, a lot of companies have gone in the other direction where they've developed a type of what I call, or what not just me, what sociologists have called uh, the McDonaldization of labor. Um, there was a book published about 30 years ago. It was a landmark work in the social sciences, although it was written on a more popular level, but it was um, based on genuine social science research by a guy named George Ritzer. And Ritzer's argument was that, and this was 30 years ago, this is the early 90s, his argument was that more and more organizations were moving towards what he called the McDonald's model of management. Um, and he didn't see this as a good thing at all uh, because he looked at it like if you look at what uh, the management model of a fast food restaurant is, it's just about getting as many people in and out as you can. That's one of the reasons why the seating in fast food restaurants tends to not be very comfortable seating. They don't want people lounging in there. You know, they want people to come in, get their Big Mac, sit down, have their meal, and go so they can get more customers in. Um, in fact, since the pandemic, one thing a lot of uh, fast food restaurants have, have learned is that it's actually cheaper to be primarily a takeout business. Mm -hmm. uh, that's why a lot of them don't even have in-store dining anymore. You know, they just do delivery with Uber Eats and takeouts. Um, so, um, but but it, it's not just in the business world that the McDonaldization model has has started to be applied. Um, when even back when Ritzer was writing about this, he was saying you start to see this in education. Universities are increasingly are adopting this McDonaldization model. Uh, organized religion, uh, you know, institutions you wouldn't really think you know, have anything to do with this kind of business model are increasingly adopting this kind of framework. Um, and the problem with that from a human resources management is that you perspective is that you develop an organizational culture where employees become disposable. You know, um, if you if you view your employees as you know being no no different than uh, say people uh, serving hamburgers at McDonald's, you don't really place any value on employee development, and that's a real problem I've seen in a lot of. Uh, organizations, uh, not ones I've been a part of and just observing from the outside. Uh, and, and this is, this is, I've noticed this not only in, in business, but also in education and in the public sector as well, where um, if you have an organization where you don't place any value on employee development, then that undermines the kind of organizational culture that you're going to have. And it organize, undermines organizational development because uh, you know, like if you, you uh, give the example of uh, Queen Elizabeth and her household staff. Well, in an organization like that, one of the things that's, pre that's present is you have a great deal of loyalty on the part of the staff members to the organization. You know, whether, whether it's their admiration for the individual that's at the top of the, the organization or just the organization and its mission or whatever, or, or merely to each other, to their, their co-workers, fellow employees and all that. In a, you know, in an organization that has a healthy organizational culture, you have a great deal of um, loyalty on the part of organization members. And when you and when you don't have that, when you don't have organizational loyalty, that undermines the functionality of the organization in a lot of different ways. Because for one thing, people just aren't as motivated to be productive members of the organization. Uh, it's not in your long-term interest as an organization to have 
you know, a whole lot of employees who just make the bare minimum of effort they can make without getting fired. Uh, but you do find that increasingly in a lot of organizations. Um, you, you, and you uh, also, when you have an organizational culture of that type, nobody feels any personal loyalty or, or, or obligations to, to the organization. They don't, they don't strive to work harder or increase their skills or output or competence. Also, it, cre it creates problems as far as organizational ethics, because if you don't have any respect for the organization you work for, you're not going to mind cheating or bending the rules when you can get away with it. That in turn leads to internal corruption in, in organizations, you know, where you have an increasing, great, increasingly greater number of people that don't mind embezzling from the company if they can get away with it. So these kinds of problems tend to spiral, and they're all human resources management problems because they're all related to organizational culture, organizational recruiting, training, development, you know, that, training, that's a, a big thing. It's like increasingly many organizations don't want to put any effort into training. Uh, I remember one organization I worked for for a while that they had this thing, and again, this was a sales-oriented organization, but they had this thing where, you know, if you bring new recruits in, if they're not, you know, killing it within a week, then you get rid of them and get a new crew, you know, and there's no there's no ramp-up time, there's no developmental time, uh, and, and the problem with that is if you have this constant turnover, the next crew you get is not going to be any better than the one that came before, it's going to be all the same problems. Uh, meanwhile, you, meanwhile, the company is just pissing away a lot of money on training sessions and on you know, hiring new people. So you're not really saving money either. It's not like it's economically efficient. Uh, of course, now human resources management isn't the only aspect of, 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 or, of organizational development, but it's a it's a critical component because your your uh, your organization is only going to be as good as your human capital. If your human capital is very low, you know, it doesn't matter how good your IT equipment is or something like that. You know, it's uh, you're going to have a low performing organization. And this is this is something that seems to be increasingly getting lost in organizational management. And, and it's like I said, it's not just the business world. It's the public sector, nonprofit organizations, education, organized religion, you name it. It's fascinating how all this functions. Uh, and I mean, it's hard to figure out where to go because there's so many, so many interesting things that you brought up. But what do you think is the most important facet of Queen Elizabeth's organizational culture, uh, specifically something that uh, companies, generally speaking, could learn from? Well, they are, in, in that kind of situation, you have a very well-established uh, cultural tradition. Um, you know, in some ways, I think the, the governmental sector, public sector, is, is different than, than the purely commercial sector. But there you have this body of tradition that, you know, the, that inspires loyalty among the organization members. You know, some of her organization members may have been loyal to, to her personally, uh, either, either as an individual or simply because of who she was and the, the office she held or which, which she represented. And then this wider cultural tradition, the English monarchy, that she was a part of. Um, there's a... Um, quote that's tribute, attributed to Queen Elizabeth II, it may be apocryphal, but supposedly she was once asked what her opinion on socialism versus capitalism was. And she said, well, we're older than both, you know, meaning we represent a much larger tradition that transcends these modern ideologies and you know, contemporary topical issues and policy initiatives and that kind of stuff. Um, and, 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 you know, while, you know, a, a, a nation is not the same thing as, as a commercial enterprise. 
but if you have a similar dynamic, um, you, you there are, um, for example, in the post-war period, you had a lot of companies that tried to cultivate a type of paternalistic relationship with employees. And the idea is, if you're a good company man, a good organization man, we're going to look for look out for you. You're going to have a, a you know a good pension, and you're going to have a, a state career and a nice retirement, and you know all these kinds of things. That idea is totally going out of the window. Um, you know, the idea of cultivating an employee base that are going to be loyal members of the organization over a long period of time, maybe even their entire working career. Uh, and no, no company, very few think like that anymore. Uh, instead, organization members are thought of, particularly at the lower levels, are thought of as being more disposable. They're thought of as being the equivalent of McDonald's cashiers. Well, they're going to be gone in a couple of years anyway, so who cares? Uh, you know, and um, that that kind of an organizational culture is not one that's going to be conducive to long-term success. Um, and I think that that's a, that's a, that's a problem uh, because if you want to engage in serious organization development, your human resources practices are going to be the foundation of that. And everything extends out from that. You know, it could be said that the human resources department is the nexus of an organization because it's through that that you staff all of the other points of view. So in many ways, the human resources management team has to be a, uh, competent in all of the other areas of the, the organization because they're the ones that are going to be recruiting and selecting people for, say, IT and uh, you know, finance and, and you know, marketing and, and all the other stuff. Um, and if you don't have a good uh, organization with, you know, loyal, competent employees, that's going to hurt your organization. And certainly it's going to be a lot, a lot damaging in the long term. You know, it's a similar uh, issue exists with things like organizational ethics. Like anybody who knows anything about business management knows that it be more corrupt or unethical the leadership of an organization, the more unethical and corrupt the members of the organization would be, because they're going to have the attitude, okay, top upper management doesn't care, why should I? Uh, and that creates a kind of mercenary internal culture of an organization where everybody's just trying to get over on everybody else and, and you know, and cheat their way to the top, so to speak. And you're not going to have an orthodox healthy organizational culture like that. I mean, a lot of those kinds of organizations end up getting taken down in scandals and, for, or for engaging in outright criminal activity. But you know, at bare minimum, you're going to have an organization where uh, there's no sense of teamwork and cooperation on a very basic level. You know, it's just like a sports team. I mean, imagine, if, you know, could a sports team work if nobody on the team had any sense of loyalty to the team, the coach, no sense of solidarity with their players? You know, just had a completely mercenary attitude. As long as I get out there and, you know, score my runs or score my touchdown and, you know, get my stats up, you know, who cares if we win the game or not? You know, it's, uh, that, that's kind of, which that's a problem that you find in the, in the organizational world and the business world today. Now, a lot of companies will claim that they are more focused on employees than they used to be. In part, this is out of necessity, given what's going on with the labor market. But also, uh, it's because a lot of companies say they've evolved, quote unquote, to meet the standards of younger workers who are thought to put up with less than older workers did. Uh, but at the same time, a lot of people are still very dissatisfied with their employment, uh, and they don't believe that the management really uh, relates well to people who would be called worker bees. And and so for all of the, uh, one could put it, uh, 
progressive thought uh, in uh, the business world, uh, it does not look like employees today are much happier as a result of it, even though the older way of doing things certainly would not uh, be <laughs> something that most employees would be happy with either. And when I say the older way of doing things, they're not talking about something as old as the Queen Elizabeth way. I'm talking about something that would have been more commonplace about 30 or so years ago. Uh, the Queen Elizabeth way is something that would have been more commonplace about you know 60 or so years ago, maybe as late as 45 uh, and you know, going way, way back uh, when people tended to work their whole lives at one company and have a pension from that company and uh, retire while never thinking they're going to make a lot of money, but still enough to be able to live off it during their last uh, 20 or so years. But uh, nowadays, obviously, uh, things have changed. And even though there is this uh, supposedly progressive thought in the business world, people today still, uh, or perhaps even more so, they're dissatisfied, dissatisfied with how things are functioning. Anything to say about this unique state of affairs, Keith? Well, we've seen that escalate quite a bit uh, in the aftermath of the pandemic. Uh, there's, this been, there's this thing that some economists and social scientists have talked about called quiet quitting, uh, basically meaning that uh, when so many people were furloughed or uh, uh, sent to work remotely uh, during uh, the pandemic, a lot of them just failed to come back, um, refused to come back when employers were starting to say, well, okay, you need to come back to the office now. A lot of employees would just say, well, no, sorry, I think I'm just going to work remotely and we're going to do about it. Um, the uh, And I think that that reflects you know, the long-term impact of some of the problems of organizational culture that I'm talking about. Um, you know, obviously at the lower levels in the service industries, you know, you know, working remotely was something that was done by professional class people. But at the service industries, one problem that a lot of service industries have had is that uh, people just don't want to come back to work. Um, in fact, you can see uh, signs, help wanted signs out in front of service industry businesses saying help wanted, you know, however much an hour and they can't get any employees because a lot of people just decided it's just not worth their effort to work or um, you know, for, for whatever reason. Um, and this, I think, is a, a long-term consequence of some of the things that I'm talking about that have been going on and you know, they, they've been escalating for decades, but I think the pandemic really brought a lot of this to the surface and, and really ex uh, ex exacerbated uh, the situation quite a bit. Um, you know, I, I see this in the academic world, too, like increasingly uh, academic institutions are being run like service industry enterprises. You know, it's like uh, it's like Walmart University or something where uh, one, you see that with staffing, where the uh, increasingly universities and colleges are not hiring full time professors. They're hiring a whole lot of uh, part time adjunct professors. Um, and they do that because they can pay them a lot less um, and they don't give them tenure or anything like that. But that really impacts the quality of the instruction that's being provided. Um, when you just have a whole lot of part-time uh, professors, you know, none of whom have, say, teaching as their primary job, some of whom are actually still graduate students or doctoral students themselves. Um, for instance, the quality, uh, one, of the, one of the lines of work I'm in, I review academic curricula. And, you know, and basically just so I follow you know, the teaching methods and, and things like that that are being used in academia. And one thing that's becoming increasingly common is that a lot of professors are not assigning long essays or long exams. Like 
It used to be that you would have a 20 page, you know, you know, say 6,000 word final paper as your term paper for a class. Nowadays, it might be a three page, 900 word essay, you know, and that's your final paper. Um, and you see even this at like upper level classes, like 300, 400 level classes, or an exam, final exam in a class is like 50 multiple choice questions, you know, even for a graduate level course. Um, and, uh, and, and a lot of that's just because professors don't want to do any work. They look at it like it's not worth their time. They're not getting rewarded for it. They're not getting paid. You know, they're not going to spend a, you know, a whole weekend grading papers. Um, I, paper, professors nowadays will grade papers with chat GBT. They will uh, cut and paste the paper into chat GBT and then cut and paste the, the, the original prompt and say, please determine whether this student followed the directions uh, in the prompt. And the chat GPT will say, well, no, the student actually did not follow directions because they did not include, you know, then the press will be like, oh, okay, I guess I'll have to get the student seat. You know, it, it's, uh, um, you know, that's, uh, I mean, you, you have uh, a lot of university classes where TA, TAs are really teaching the class. Uh -huh. um, um, you know, and, and even, even in some classes, I've come across situations where you had senior level TAs teaching freshman level classes. So, you you have you have what amounts to college seniors teaching the freshmen because you know they're not even graduate students yet. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, so and and you you find you can find comparable practices in all institutions. This is a trans institutional uh, issue. You know, like uh, way back in the 1940s, James Burnham talked about the managerial revolution and how in, in modern societies one of the things that you see that's commonplace across institutions, you see these managerial bureaucracies that are developing as organizations become more complex and you know, population expansion and technological development and all that. So you see this in business, you see it in academia, you see it in, in the public sector, uh, you see it all kinds of places. Um, but it, it really does undermine the quality of an organization's output. It undermines the business's efficiency and long-term productivity. In education, it undermines the quality of education that's being provided. Uh, in government, it's going to generate a lot of wasteful uh, bureaucracy. Um, so it's a it's a really far-reaching, pervasive issue. It is, uh, and I don't think things are going to turn around anytime soon. Uh, now, it has been uh, said that small businesses can more readily learn from Elizabeth's uh, style of management, her organizational culture, because they can less readily afford the uh, surprisingly steep cost of employee turnover relative to large companies uh, and even mid-sized ones. What do you think about this point of view? Well, in a small business, there's a more of a personal relationship the owner and the employees. I think that's the big part of it. Uh, your employer is someone you know personally, you have an interpersonal relationship with. Um, and it's, it's so it's more like, a, you know, your, your employers or employees are more like your neighbors or extended family or, you know, uh, you know it's more of a team. Um, and I think that the, the, the interpersonal dynamics involved are what contribute to that. Um, also, small businesses don't have as many employees, so it's possible to spend more time developing individual uh, employees uh, and, and, you know, and helping them, you know, nurturing them so that they can develop their skills of whatever it is you're doing over time. Um, you know, whereas, uh, you know, in, in, the, in larger companies, they're, they're, they, see, they see employees as just numbers on a, on a balance sheet. Um, 
Uh, also, one thing that's going on that's impacted this a great deal is the fact that more and more companies are only hiring part-time people. Now, this is primarily in the in the service industry. It's it's less common in the professional um, sectors where you have to have higher levels of skill. But a lot of these Walmart-type places today or fast food chains, they only hire uh, part-time people. Um, they you know they'll typically hire a whole bunch of people who only work 25 hours a week. Uh, they do that to avoid having to uh, provide uh, healthcare under the uh, ACA and, and all of the other things like that. That's that, you know, one of the negative impacts of the Affordable Care Act is that a whole lot of organizations cut back on full-time employees so they wouldn't have to pay for healthcare benefits or provide healthcare benefits to employees. And that, that happened in the academic world, by the way, too. They would actually cut back on the number of courses that adjuncts were allowed to teach because if they taught more than a certain number of courses, then they were covered by the uh, ACA. Um, that that actually happened there. Um, so, um, but so you end up having uh, you know some of these big superstore places, for example, will have 200 employees, and, and virtually all of them except the the managers will will work uh, 25 or 20 hours a week, something like that. Uh, but when you have a whole bunch of part-time workers, that doesn't contribute to organizational development at all because the, the workers have no motivation to improve their skills or craft if they are only going to be there a few hours a week and probably not going to last very long anyway. Uh, and, and also management develops the attitude with employees that are changeable. You know, we get rid of these, we'll get some more, so who cares? Uh, you know, that, that doesn't motivate the management to try to nurture and develop their staff either, which means that the quality of the organization will suffer as a result of that. Mm -hmm. It really is something else. Uh, and I, I think that a lot of people are angry about how uh, human resources are, are handled by various companies because they feel that they are treated as uh, worthless entities, essentially. Uh, and in many cases, there's great justification for feeling this way. But in other cases, people inflate their own sense of self-worth and they think that there's something close to irreplaceable when in reality, that's not the case. So there's a lot of stuff going on here that's uh, very hard to summarize. And obviously it changes so much from person to person, situation to situation, but uh, it is going on all the same. And I think that the story of Queen Elizabeth, how she's able to keep such a stable workforce for such a very long time using uh, rather, uh, some would say antiquated, but I would say established methods. Uh, it's, it's something else in a very positive way. Uh, although a lot of large companies might say, well, her model worked for her, but we really don't want it because we live in this very globalized economy where labor is much more transient. Uh, we don't necessarily have to stick with the same labor pool that we once did. And even within that labor pool, people are less interested in staying in the same place for a prolonged period. But I think uh, there are certainly some aspects of her uh, strategies which can be emulated by large businesses, the largest of businesses, uh, though for small businesses, I think unquestionably, they do not have the ability to eat the costs of turnover at all or to the extent which uh, large companies or even mid-sized ones do. So it would be a very good idea to look at how Elizabeth handled uh, human resources, essentially. Yeah. Um, well, we're talking about the issues on the employee and we've been talking about management issues, but there are issues with employees as well, because and this is ironically see quite a bit of in the professional sector in the, or you know, among educated workers. Uh, increasingly, you have more and more educated workers who go into the workforce 
with a sense of entitlement, you know, the attitude, well, the job is there to serve them and make their life more comfortable and that kind of thing. I, and, you know, whatever you think about that philosophically, that's not how business works. And, uh, and you know, I, I would, I've seen this myself in, in the business world as well. Um, sometimes you get particularly younger people who are educated, who are college educated, and you can tell that a lot of them are people that have never really had to take responsibility for anything in their life or, uh, you know, they've been pampered quite a bit. A lot of them were probably, you know, uh, subjected to helicopter parenting and, and that kind of stuff when they were growing up. And they're really just not prepared for uh, just this, the, the standard features of, of professional life. Um, for instance, uh, you know, they, they don't really want to conform to any kind of expectations that are, that are necessary in terms of making the organization better as a whole. Um, they view being asked to take responsibility as, a, a, as an imposition, um, you know, as, as, a, as being abusive, um, you know, even, even when it's some necessary function. Uh, I think that that is a real issue, particularly among younger educated professional class workers. I, I've, I've seen that as well. I've seen I've seen this attitude that, you know, you, you, you owe me something simply because I walked through the door. And I think that's a problem. Yeah, it's uh, interesting to say the absolute least. Uh, now, Keith, uh, before we uh, move on, do you think that things are likely to change during the years to come to any meaningful degree? I mean, it'd be nice, obviously, if uh, various businesses adopted uh, Queen Elizabeth's approaches to the most uh, practical extent possible, but obviously a lot of them will not. Uh, but uh, in any case, do you expect things to, to alter one way or the other significantly? Uh, what do you think is going to come about? Well, I think that the way the economy is going, um, it seems like there are a number of people who just aren't, uh, an increasingly greater number of people who just aren't motivated to, to work. You know, this, this traditional work ethic idea that you find in an Anglo-Protestant culture seems to be dissipating. Um, and, you know, in fact, uh, earlier today, I was talking to someone I know who deals with the homeless quite a bit in his professional capacity. And he said that of all the homeless people that he's dealt with, only about 20% of them would prefer to get a job and not be homeless. The other 80% are like, no, I'll just be homeless rather oh. than actually go get a job. You know, and it's uh, I think there are, is a greater number of people who are you know developing that kind of attitude, and it may have something to do with business practices and labor practices as well as other cultural or social factors as well, because they just don't see themselves as being valued by employers and, and things like that. Now, now becoming homeless is, is on the extreme end of things, but but um, but there's a, you know, a lesser version of attitudes like that I, I, that I come across all the time in uh, you know, more more conventional labor markets. Um, so I and I think that that's something that you often find in societies where people don't see themselves as upwardly mobile. Uh, you know, like there's this thing that a lot of social scientists have talked about in recent times about how previously in, a, in the United States for multiple generations, there's this idea where you you were going to be more successful than your parents' generation as long as you worked at it and, and things like that, didn't become an alcoholic or heroin addict and, and those kinds of things. Um, nowadays, there's an increasingly greater number of younger people in the professional force and workforce who don't see themselves as, as having the chance to do better than their parents did. They think they're going to do worse. And a lot of them seem to be increasingly giving up altogether. And, and you see 
not phenomenal, like, you know, 37-year-old guys who still live in their mom's basement and that kind of stuff. And, you know, some, not all of that is their fault. I mean, housing costs have, have gone up dramatically in, in recent decades. Um, but um, but you, you often find this, like some sociologists that compare different cultures will, um, and, and not just sociologists, but business economists and others will, who compare different cultures will talk about where you have some cultures that where there's a high time preference and then there's a low time preference and the emphasis on instant gratification and uh, delayed gratification and uh where there's a work ethic or there's a you know, not a work ethic but in a, in a lot of cultures where the people tend to be very static in terms of upward mobility and social mobility what you find is a lack of what uh, americans would call a work ethic in the sense that you know, you're not going to bother to say go work overtime to you know either increase your income or increase your skills when you can just take a nap every afternoon. You know, it's uh, you know I'm I'm encountering countering more and more of those kinds of attitudes um, among uh, people in the workforce as well. Um, you know, like I know one one place where I I was actually a human resources manager. I remember uh, I would uh, give employees the the option of working overtime or 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 it's not even, not even working overtime, but just increasing their hours from full time to part time in order to increase their income. And then there would be incentives. This is these were sales related positions. So there were built in incentives, and some of them would just say, "No, I just don't want to work more." You know, uh, I remember in fact, I even had one guy that worked for me. He told me he says, "No, you know, I just want to sit sit at home every night and drink beer. I'm not, you know, <laughs> I don't care about work." You know, it's uh, I mean, he told his employer that. You know, it, it's uh. So, and I'm seeing this kind of thing more often, but I do think that reflects cultural and social and economic and technological changes that drive some of those kinds of attitudes. It's something. And then uh, also, according to some fairly recent data, COVID made uh, young adults, uh, well, we're just quoting from NBC uh, and an article published in uh, September of 2022, uh, Adults became less extroverted, open, and agreeable, and conscientious during the pandemic, a new study found. Uh, there's really not much more point in getting into it, but uh, I, I think that COVID did have the influence of making people more uh, edgy, shall I say, perhaps entitled, and uh, comprehensively disagreeable, especially younger people. So uh, obviously, it's it, it very difficult to get along in the workforce if you have these traits. Yeah, and I think that those characteristics have been exacerbated by the impact of the pandemic. I think that cultural um, patterns have exacerbated that. One of them is these culture is this culture war politics that I think people are getting so used to arguing uh, about the politics or social issues with people on Facebook that they're bringing that into the workforce now. They're starting to have this argumentative attitude everywhere. I mentioned earlier phenomena like uh, uh, parenting styles, and uh, increasingly you find younger people coming into the workforce that have this, um, you know, they, they've obviously been parented in such a way where they were never allowed to fall off a bicycle and skin their knee, or, you know, they, they, they're, they're just not capable of handling frustration and disappointment, and, uh, you know, they, they don't see the merit in, you know, um, in, in working to get ahead in the future, you know, they, if, they, if things don't go their way immediately, they, they get frustrated and angry and upset. Um, 
and so all of these, you know, all of these things are interconnected in my view. All of these social and cultural patterns impact the economy and business life as well. Mm. Yeah, it, it, it's it's really uh, fascinating, and not necessarily in a good way, but it's interesting anyway. One looks at the situation just because there's so many moving parts, and they are all so consequential. Keith, uh, there actually is another question that comes to mind before we move on. Uh, and this is a, a pretty big one, but I think it's definitely worth asking. Uh, on a scale of one to 10 uh, in the US, and, and we can throw Canada in as well because it's so similar economically, uh, how replaceable would you say the average worker is uh, nowadays? Well, would one, what would be irreplaceable? So, I, I should have been. Uh, one is uh, the uh, least replaceable, 10 is the most replaceable. Oh, most most employees are on the high end of that. I mean, they're on the you know, they're in the eight, nine, ten range. Yeah, there's not many employees that aren't replaceable. Uh, the ones the ones that are 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 you know, the, uh, the the employees that are that are irreplaceable are those that have really highly specialized skills. Uh, you know, you if you have uh, uh, for example in the company if your your IT director if that if that individual is a particularly skilled, knowledgeable person, um, that, and you lose that person, that can be a problem. Um, you know, it, it, so it's really the technological decisions, I think, that are the most serious. You know, as far as service industries, that you know, most people in service industries are replaceable. Even a lot of professional class people are replaceable. You know, bureaucrats are certainly replaceable. Educators are replaceable. Yeah, they are. Uh, and interestingly, a lot of bureaucrats and educators tend to think they are the least replaceable. Uh, I mean, there are others, too, in different professions. But uh, uh, definitely, people are replaceable nowadays, uh, overwhelmingly so. And uh, I, I think perhaps more people are realizing that, perhaps that makes them edge, uh, more on edge. Uh, so that, that very well could be it. But uh, no question that the times most certainly are changing and i'll just throw out one last thing before we move on i do think that i mean there's no question that queen elizabeth approached her uh managerial role from the perspective of uh some noblesse oblige which is the idea that people who are given quite a bit uh, have a duty to look after those who are not as fortunate as they are. Uh, and it used to be that a lot of very uh, successful uh, folks in the business sector had a, a similar outlook. Uh, I mean, there, there's no shortage of great philanthropic uh, achievements by uh, the titans of the Gilded Age, for instance. And while philanthropy still goes on, it's not typically as grand or as uh, long-term its vision as what took place about a hundred years ago, more than that, actually. Now, uh, so it's 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 uh, it's something else. It really is how Elizabeth looked at dealing with others today in the business world, even among people who are very successful. Uh, noblesse oblige is nothing that is uh, uh, generally uh, kept to heart uh, if it even comes up at all. Of course, there are lots of words about uh, you know fairness and equity and uh dei and this and that and the other thing uh but uh, in reality there is not uh a, a long-range humanitarian vision things are much more mercenary this is not universally the case i will say but it certainly is the case uh to a great degree anything to say about this state of affairs Keith? yeah i've seen quite a bit of that uh that's a real issue uh increasingly 
organizations uh, have no sense of no lease of life whatsoever, uh, not zero. Um, you know, they, they uh, and what's interesting about that, though, is that they try to cover that up by adopting this kind of, you know, ESG model, you know, stakeholder capitalist uh, framework that strikes me as just purely propagandistic or, or it's really about virtue signaling uh, for marketing purposes or simply by trying to cover their bases legally. Um, some of the companies that pride themselves on their, their wokeness, for example, are some of the worst in terms of how they actually treat employees. Uh, you know, they, I mean, they'll, you know, they'll put their rainbow flag, you know, logo on their corporate website during Pride Month or their, you know, their Juneteenth or you know, whatever it is, MLK birthday. So they, they send out their virtue signaling about how, you know, how woke and progressive socially conscious their organization is. You can look at how they actually treat employees. They're, they're as bad as anybody. Uh, sometimes they're some of the worst. Uh, so that, that's a really interesting uh, phenomenon to observe. And of course, that, that, that reciprocates because then you have organization members who, are, who have no sense of loyalty or, or commitment to the organization either. Um, as far as you know, the other, wider aspects of that, um, a while back I was having a conversation with a friend of mine who was actually a communist. Uh, and she's a real one, not one of these, you know, pink-haired types. But uh, but she was saying that because uh, she had actually worked in an organization that was owned indirectly by the Van- Vanderbilts at one point, and she was saying, yeah, it's interesting how these old-school uh, elites, you know, they had this sense of uh, civic engagement or or um, uh, nobly obliged or whatever that you don't see among your 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 modern elites, you know, like your, your modern elites, they're more likely to, you know, instead of investing in museums and animal preserves and things like that, instead they just buy weird furniture and, and, and that kind of stuff. Uh, or they'll build some weird house and, you know, on the side of a mountain or something, you know, some weird, you know, multi-diagonal shape or something. Uh, you, know, uh, you know, they'll, they'll fund modern art, you know, like Jackson Pollock type art or something like that. Um, and uh, and I think that's an issue too. You know, like you know, David Brooks years ago wrote a book called The Bourgeois Bohemians, uh, and talks about this. He talks about how you had this rising class of elites and who were educated and financially successful, but have this kind of bohemian lifestyle taste you know, where uh, you know they're into like weird art and, and you know, weird music and, and all kinds of strange things like uh, you know um, you know pseudoscience or. Well, well, a good example is the fixation on transhumanism that you find among some of the Silicon Valley elites. You know, it's, uh, you know, Carl, what, what is the what is the pseudoscience where you freeze your body when you die and hopefully it'll get it Oh, uh, cryonics. Yeah, that's something that I think is popular in some of those circles, you know, which, you know, I mean, these are, oh, that's what they're into, that's what they're into. But, uh, but you, yeah, but I think our new elites tend to be more in that vein, you know, I think they're more. You know, they're more like the kind of elites that in past times would have been considered, you know, decadent aristocrats, or, you know, it, you know, as opposed to this sense of uh, noble elites of lives that tends to accompany a lot of these older elites, and, and as well, particularly royal elites like Queen Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, obviously the older model works uh, much better than the newer one for society on the whole, but uh, go figure that the older one has been discarded. Now, keep talking about society. Social conservatism for quite some time now has been solidly on the downswing. 
But according to some new numbers from Gallup, which I will address specifically in a moment, uh, that is changing. And uh, the, the change is quite fascinating. Uh, you have certainly heard about this. Anything to say about the situation before we get into the brass tacks of it? Yeah, well, what's going on in the world right now? Well, I don't, I don't think the world, in, in, in the United States political culture right now, is something that's very similar to what happened in the late 70s, where, you know, in the 60s, we had this cultural revolution that involved very far-reaching changes in society. But by the late 70s, there was this feeling that some of that had really overreached. Uh, for example, there was an explosion of crime in the 70s. And people thought that it was widely believed, well, you know, the, the system's just being too lenient when it comes to the criminals. Um, also, the, the race issue was another thing. Uh, you know, um, a lot of people looked at it like, well, okay, civil rights and integration are fine, but when you get into this busing issue, where you're sending children across town just to socially engineer, uh, you know, the population demographics of the public school system. You know, what, whether that whether you agree with that policy or not, it was widely perceived of as you know, overreach and excessive and uh, even oppressive. Um, also, um, the back in those days, there was this feeling that some of the sexual revolution had gone too far. People would say, well, you know, look at the increasingly higher rates of venereal disease, or teen pregnancy. And, and things like that. And of course, the gay rights thing back then was just becoming fairly mainstream. And that was an issue that people were saying, well, should gays be in the military? Should gays be able to be school teachers? We have a similar situation now where in the last, I'd say, you know, 15, 10 to 15 years, we've gradually seen a very significant leftward shift in the culture of the United States. Um, and particularly in the last few years with the Black Lives Matter protests and, and, and all that. And then you have this woke cultural phenomenon, all that kind of stuff. Uh, so now it looks like that we're getting to a point where more people are starting to say, well, maybe some of that is overreach. Um, for instance, uh, when it comes to uh, uh, the, some of the uh, race issues, I think a lot of people will say, look, you know, we don't want black folks being brutalized by the police. But, you know, teaching some of this critical race theory stuff in the public school system is a little over the top. And, you know, that's just brainwashing kids with the extremist ideology. We don't really need to take it that far. Or they may say, well, look, you know, gay marriage is okay. I can go for that. You know, I don't care if my gay cousin gets married or whatever. But, you know, when it comes to the little children, blockers and, and that kind of stuff. Do we really need that? Is that something we really encourage? You know, uh, you know, do we, do we, we want to encourage more and more people to have transgender surgery? Uh, and a lot of people are thinking, you know, that's a little much as well. Uh, in some parts of the United States, there have been increased concerns about crime, crime, and the street level crime, like particularly like uh, in the larger cities, you know, Philadelphia, Seattle, New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, some of these places have experienced increases in crime. Uh, and so people are saying, well, wait a minute now, you know, you know this sure criminal justice reform might be okay. But we do, do we want to take it so far that we just say, you know, that carjacking is a victimless crime or whatever. So, you know, these, you know, there's more people are becoming concerned about these issues. And I think that that is starting to be reflected in opinion polls and, and that kind of stuff. Uh, of course, we have to realize, though, that what is considered social conservatism 
at one point might not be the same thing as social conservatism at another point. Absolutely. Like right, like right now, you might have a lot of people who are, would be considered social conservatives by contemporary norms, which means that, well, you know, they, they may be gay and gay married, but they kind of look askance at the trans thing, you know, or uh, they, you know, they may even be a minority, uh, so they're for civil rights, but then they, some of the rhetoric coming from, you know, certain minority camps is a bit over the top and outlandish or counterproductive. Uh, so, you know, today's social conservatism and say the social conservatism of the, the Reagan era, or the Eisenhower era, or the 19th century might be much, much different. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, no doubt about that. And you bring up a key distinction that I actually was going to raise. Uh, social conservatism entails different things at different times uh, and to different people. And obviously it varies from culture to culture. Uh, so how people define themselves as being socially conservative is very much uh, a, uh, uh, a shape-shifting matter. And uh, that always should be uh, remembered whenever anybody brings up anything about how socially conservative or progressive uh, society is at any given point in time. Now, Gallup uh, did publish an article on the 8th of June titled Social Conservatism in the U.S. Highest in About a Decade. And reading the, the beginning of the article, more Americans this year, 38%, say they are very conservative or conservative on social issues than said so in 2022, 33%, and 2021, 30%. At the same time, the percentage saying their social views are very liberal or liberal has dipped to 29% and 34% in each of the past two years, while the portion identifying as moderate, 31%, remains near a third. The last time this many Americans said they were socially conservative was 2012, during a period when consistently more U.S. adults identified as conservative rather than liberal on social issues so that really is interesting uh i mean they, they, there's there's more to get into here and i will get into it but keith anything to say about that yeah well that actually overlaps with what i was just saying about how social conservatism means different things at different times i was actually discussing this recently with a friend of mine who's let's see he's probably about 20 years younger than me he's in his 30s um and he thinks of himself as a social conservative, but he was telling me that uh, that there's a much the, the the young people today who identify as socially conservative are much different than older people who identify as socially conservative. For instance, he was saying, well, most young people who identify as social conservatives today are not religious. You know, many do not go to church at all. Uh, others are have no problem with the gay people. Um, you know, they're fine with having gay co-workers, gay family members, and all of that. Um, you know, some of them are, um, you know, in interracial relationships and, and things of that nature, you know, things that would not be considered socially conservative at times. But their version of social conservatism is, well, we don't like, um, you know, little kids having transgender surgery, or uh, we think that the, you know, uh, Chesapeake died in, in San Francisco was too lenient when it came to prosecuting serious criminals. Or uh, we think that we should not have critical race theory being taught, or, or you know, some of the racial rhetoric coming from sectors of the left is too extreme. Or they think that uh, uh, perhaps you know we should curb immigration somewhat. Or 
uh, you know, and these are, you know, that, that, that's all of these things are, you know, would be considered moderately liberal positions uh, a generation ago. You know, so a lot of a lot of people today who are considered social conservatives are really moderate liberals as opposed to like the far left or or, or, or something of that nature. Um, the uh, uh, yeah, it, it's uh, and and you, you could go down the list of issues and and see that uh, a lot of uh, for example, I was talking to a, a woman recently who uh, is part of this national conservatism movement that's developed in recent times. You know, supposedly this is a you know a right wing you know yeah. religious traditionalist movement or whatever. But she was uh, she was telling me she's probably around thirty, and she was telling me that she's actually for legalizing prostitution. She has no problem with legal marijuana. You know, she may draw the line at legalizing heroin, you know, but, uh, you know, they, so this, you know, this, this is her, but she, she insists that she is a social conservative. She considers herself an evangelical religious conservative, you know, oh. and, uh, you know, I'm like, oh, well, you know, you, not, not to me. It's, uh, you know, it's, uh, I mean, in fact, younger people I know who identify as social conservative, I tell them that all the time, look, you're a liberal, okay? It's, uh, uh, but, but, uh, that, but I do think that that is a problem with the left, you know, a problem with a lot of people on the left, progressives, is that they don't know how to quit when they're ahead. Absolutely. And what ends up happening is that they push things to the nth degree, to the point that they generate a backlash against themselves. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, you know, take something like drug policy reform. Okay, most people might be okay with legalizing marijuana, you know, having methadone clinics for heroin addicts or whatever. But when it comes to allowing you know junkies to you know defecate on the street, like you know, that's way you know, that's just a lifestyle choice or whatever. Some people say, well, that's just taking things to ridiculous extremes, and we need to push back against that. Uh, you know, the, the, I don't even see that the gay thing is, is even an issue for most people anymore. Maybe for the still hardcore religious right or something, they probably want to. I mean, I'm sure Bill, uh, I mean, uh, Ben Ben Shapiro, he probably still wants to overturn gay marriage, but most conservatives today don't. I mean, most conservatives today that are interested in sexual issues, it's mostly just the transgender thing that they think has, has gone overboard. Uh, we'll get to something interesting in a minute, but looking uh, at some more stats uh, from Gallup in their article about uh, social conservatism in the U.S., there is a graph, changes in self-identification as conservative on social issues by age, 2021 to 2023, Thinking about social issues, would you say your views on social issues are very conservative, conservative, moderate, liberal, or very liberal? Uh, now, uh, let's see here. Uh, people who are 18 to 29 in 2021, uh, they said they were very conservative 24%, uh, to the tune of 24%. In 2022, it went up to 26%. By 2023, it went up to 30%, which is quite uh, surprising, but uh, there it is. Uh, people who are 30 to 49, uh, people who are uh, 30 to 49, uh, it was 22% in 2021, 27% uh, in 2022, and 35% in 2021. 23. Uh, so it's uh, it's interesting how this has uh, changed. And these are people who say they are very conservative 
or conservative on social issues. These are the specific percentages that I'm reading off here. So there was a six percentage point change among 18 to 29s between 2021 and 2023, uh, and a 13 percentage point change among those who are between 30 and 49. Uh, among those who are 50 to 64, 35% said they were uh, very conservative, were conservative on social issues in 2021, whereas 46% say that now, so that's an 11 percentage point change. Interestingly, very interestingly, among people who are 65 years of age uh, or older, uh, it was 43% in 2021, 44% in 2022, and 42% this year, which is uh, negative one point uh, overall over the, the two-year period. So this is something else. The biggest gain comes among those who are between the ages of 30 and 49, which does not surprise me. Uh, well, it's actually a little surprising that the 18 to 29s became six percentage points for socially conservative or, uh, you know, whether you're saying they're very conservative or conservative, whatever. But uh, 30 to 49s, these are people who tend to be the parents of children who were uh, negatively impacted by the COVID-related lockdowns. And then that brought about when these kids were at home, parents seeing what their offspring were learning. And that's what started a lot of parents becoming knowledgeable about, you know, transvestitism being taught to kids, stuff like that. Uh, in, in some cases, drag queens literally coming to deliver presentations to children. Uh, and this is all being done remotely. So the parents, uh, for the first time, saw what was going on. Uh, and that, I think, certainly radicalized quite a few of them. Uh, and so it would be this prime demographic, 30 to 49, uh, that these parents fall under. Uh, so that this uh, age bracket had the greatest change in terms of uh, increased very conservative or conservative ideas on social policy, uh, th that to me is not a shocker at all. Keith, anything to say about this? Well, among the younger people, I think part of the increase in, so in self-identified social conservatives could ironically be attributed to tr perceived transgressiveness. Um, if you're in that age range, you're in the age range where if you're a college student or you're just entering the workforce and you have to go to all of your mandatory, you know, you know, DEI training and all that. Oh, the 18 to 29s. Yeah, 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 the 18 to 29, the young, the youngest adults. Um, um, you know, it's kind of like, you know, I, I think for that demographic, if you're being force fed this, all of this stuff constantly, you know, the, the, the rebellious thing to do was to be conservative. You know, it's, in fact, you know, the, the alt-right milieu that was developed uh, back in the mid, uh, you know, back about 10 years ago and for a while. Um, one thing that I noticed about that milieu is that it tended to attract a lot of young men sure. who were very into being transgressive. And the more transgressive they could be, um, they were the of people that in the 80s they would have been teenage Satanists um, <laughs> you know, and, and you know and, and being anti-woke or being politically incorrect or you know you know telling uh, racist or you know homophobic jokes or whatever that's that's the equivalent of being rebellious and against accepted social norms or, or whatever uh, today so I think you you would uh, the more the more entrenched the the you know, progressive ideology becomes in institutions, I think the more you're going to see some people, particularly younger men, becoming uh, more, you know, self-proclaimed conservative uh, just for transgressive purposes or rebellious purposes or whatever. Um, 
uh, I think you're right about the, the more middle-aged people, uh, you know, the, 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 the people who were of the age where they are uh, young parents, you know, they have, they're, they're parents of young children. I think it's not at all surprising that they identify as being more socially conservative. That, that's often true of parents generally. Many people become more socially conservative when they become parents because they want to protect their children from danger corrupt influences as they perceive them or whatever. So some of that's to be expected. But I do think, though, that some, some of the stuff that's happened in recent years has fueled that. Uh, I think the riots in, in 2020 are one where people are increasingly concerned about safety, uh, in, perceived increases in crime rates, uh, you know, disorder in cities and things like that. I think people are concerned about you know, safe living conditions. As you mentioned, the uh, content of, the, of education, you know, the, the I, when they start teaching, uh, uh, you know, ra racial ideology that's somewhat extreme by conventional, you know, compared, certainly compared to what these people would find acceptable, or or teaching uh, transgender ideology, I think they increasingly think, well, wait a minute, that's just going way overboard. And, you know, we, we, you know, I mean, but I imagine a lot of these people who identify as very conservative. If you ask them, should the Civil Rights Act of 1964 be repealed? They say, of course not. That's ridiculous. You know. Or they'd say, should we just do away with all environmental laws? You know, oh no, of course not. We don't want to do that. You know, should we have laws that protect animals from cruelty? Yeah, sure, of course. You know, should gay people be able to get married? Most of them probably say, yeah. You know, so it's you know, this is not yesterday's social conservatism at all. And uh, the last thing I'll get to here before I address something else that came up from Gallup, uh, which does deal with same-sex issues, uh, but uh, this does not. Uh, Americans' liberal-slash-conservative self-identification on economic issues. Thinking about economic issues, would you say your views on economic issues are very conservative, conservative, moderate, liberal, or very liberal? Focusing on those who say they are very conservative or conservative, uh, the number now stands at 44%, which is an increase of four percentage points from last year uh, and an increase of five percentage points from 2020. That, of course, was uh, the height of the pandemic when people tended to be in favor of big government solutions to just about everything. Uh, the percentage of people who identify as very liberal or liberal on economic issues is that 21% unchanged from last year, but in 2021, it was 25%. Uh, so that is a decrease of uh, four percentage points from 2021 and 2020 is at 21%. So there was a four percentage point jump between 2020 and 2021, but the four percentage point decline between 2021 and 2023. Uh, very interesting here uh, because economic conservatism has not been this high since, let me see, 2012 when it was at 46%. So there's only a two point two percentage point difference between now and 11 years ago. Uh, Keith, anything to say about this? Um, I, I suspect that one thing that may have impacted that was the impact of the uh, stimulus uh, spending where you had you know, people getting checks in the mail and that, that, that kind of thing. A common criticism of that was that, well, everybody just wanted to collect unemployment you know, indefinitely. And they, you know, I, I know uh, small business owners that will talk about this. They say, yeah, well, all my employees, they all went on unemployment. Nobody wants to come back to work. You know, they just want to ride unemployment for as long as they possibly can. So I expect that 
a lot of people in society have observed trends like that and think, well, you know, maybe we should be uh, less uh, economically liberal. Um, another thing is, you know, you, you see the uh, stories about, uh, you know, places that have uh, help wanted signs with, with no ap applicants. You know, I think there's this increased sense that there are more people who just want to be freeloaders or don't want to work or, or whatever. So maybe we should be more economically conservative in terms of policies and things like that. Reading uh, another article from Gallup uh, uh, published this month, as obviously the last one was, uh, this second article is titled, Fewer in U.S. Say Same-Sex Relations Morally Acceptable. Uh, I'll start reading uh, the beginning of it. Americans' views about the morality of a number of behaviors and practices are largely stable compared with a year ago. However, significantly fewer say same-sex relations are morally acceptable, and more say the death penalty is. Americans are most likely to say birth control is morally acceptable, with 88% holding that view. At least 7 in 10 say the same about divorce, sex between, unmarried, uh, sex between an unmarried man and woman, and having a baby outside of marriage. Uh, Same-sex relations and the death penalty are in the next group, along with gambling, stem cell research, wearing animal fur, with between 60% and 69% of Americans approving of those five issues from a moral perspective. U.S. adults are least likely to condone married men and women having an affair, human cloning, and suicide. I'll just say my point of view here, the, the, the big, big, big problem for me is having a child outside of marriage. That to me is always a bad uh, idea. And it is a little uh, distressing to see about seven and 10 percent say that is okay. Uh, anything else? Uh, well, I mean, uh, uh, any, anything else? Uh, I really don't care. But well, I mean, the affair thing obviously is not good. But I would argue that having a child out of wedlock is even worse. Uh, but uh, anyway, that, that, that's my point uh, of view there. Uh, I don't care about same-sex relations as long as they're between adults. And cloning may well be good. Who knows? That could lead to big advances in human genetics. Uh, and I don't think suicide is a bad thing as long as it is something that an individual comes to on his or her own terms. Anyway, time for me to get off my soapbox and move along. Uh, Keith, anything to say about what I read? Or if you want to comment on my opinion, that's fine too. Well, I think one thing that may be pushing public opinion rightward on a lot of social issues and maybe even some economic issues is demographic change. One thing that I have been telling leftists and progressives for years is that as the immigrant population grows in size, as the minority population grows in size, and this isn't meant as a criticism, this is just a sociological observation. This isn't meant as a normative statement. Um, but as the, those populations grow in size, we're likely to see an increase of social conservatism because social conservatism is more common among the non-European uh, population groups generally, and especially among a lot of immigrant communities. Uh, also, not just social conservatism, but even economic conservatism, because many uh, uh, immigrant populations are uh, oriented towards the small business class. Uh, you know, a lot of them see themselves as upwardly mobile people, uh, and that tends to feed uh, conservative economic views. Uh, you know, somebody who comes to the United States from, say, Lebanon and starts a business, they're going to be an economic conservative. Um, you know, somebody who's from Latin America who's a traditional Catholic or from, say, the Middle East and they're a Muslim, they're going to be 
uh, a social conservative. Um, so it's not surprising that is uh, the you know demographic changes taking place that um, it's likely that there will be uh, increased social conservatism, even economic conservatism in some sectors. I don't know that it's going to be enough to to uh, for, bring about a drastic change. I mean, but it's going to be uh, I think it's going to have an impact. Um, one thing that I think is different, though, about your uh, approach to conservatism than many American conservatives is uh, yours is not particularly religion driven. And I think uh, most conservatives, oh, I don't know most, ma many conservatives in the United States who are the most conservatives are, are most conservative are clearly very religion generally uh, driven. Um, and that's particularly true among older people. Uh, and um, I think that as the influence of organized religion decreases, which every uh, uh, statistical indication shows that it is, uh, certainly this traditional Anglo-American white Protestantism, certainly that is decreasing in influence over time, I think. Uh, now, that may be counterbalanced somewhat by a, a growing Catholic population, a growing Islamic population, and, and things like that. But, uh, but we do see this kind of American evangelical Protestant conservatism that dominated the Republican Party and conservative politics for a generation. And we do see that declining. Um, and that will in turn impact how people see social and cultural issues. Um, for instance, abortion. I, I don't really see that much evidence that Americans are becoming more conservative on abortion. In fact, the abortion issue is a liability to the Republicans now because the Republicans are seen as extremists on the pro-life side. Um, also, uh, some of these other issues that were, were big things for religious conservatives in the past, like stem cell research, you never hear anybody talk about that anymore. Um, and, you know, and, so, and, and the gay issue is a thing. You know, I, most people today who look askance at the transgender issue, I don't think they're looking at it from a religious perspective. Well, this is against God or whatever. They're looking at it like, though, this is child abuse. They they see it as the equivalent of the uh, you know genital mutilation that happens to young women in some very conservative religious societies. Uh, that's more their take, I think. You know, so. Uh, so, you know, and it gets back to what I was saying uh, before about social conservatism is, you know, in the future is going to mean something different than what it has meant in past times. You know, I, I'm not uh, that old. I was born during George H.W. Bush's administration. And yet when I was a boy, social conservatism obviously was much more religion oriented than it is now, particularly from a uh, conservative Protestant perspective. And here in Florida, uh, homosexual behavior was still technically illegal, even though it was rarely enforced. Sometimes it was. It was you know, selective prosecution that did happen. Uh, then uh, interracial marriage between blacks and whites, even across the whole of the U.S., it was uh, frowned upon until 1997 by a majority of people, as I recall. Uh, certainly growing up in the part of Florida where I did, that, that was... Uh, something I didn't even know happened until I was, I think, in the second grade. It was like not even spoken about. Uh, and, you know, I'm not an old guy. Uh, so this is the way things were. Uh, and yet today, uh, the rainbow flag is everywhere. And uh, one sees also everywhere, particularly on television, these interracial, uh, particularly black and white relationships. Nobody really cared about other interracial relationships, as I remember. Uh, but whenever anybody said interracial, I mean, it very, very, very rarely came.
from. Uh, but uh, it was, it was it, the idea that came to mind was a, a particularly a black man and a white woman, although it could go the other way. Uh, so it, it's interesting how what's considered to be social conservatism uh, has changed. It's changed massively in a rather short period of time. Uh, now, looking at uh, specific issues here, uh, Americans' opinions of moral issues, 2022 versus 2023, regardless of whether you think the issue should be legal for each one, please tell me whether you personally believe it is morally acceptable or morally wrong. Uh, figures are the percentage saying morally acceptable. Obviously, Gallup just stated its question and gave an explanation as to what the numbers amount to. Uh, Birth control is popular among 88% of the uh, of respondents, but that's a four percentage point decrease from 2022. Divorce is down by three percentage points to 78%. Sex between an unmarried man and woman down four percentage points to 72%. No change in having a baby outside of marriage. That remains at zero, which is disturbing. I would hope that that'd be close to 100% of people saying that's a bad idea because that economically uh, and uh, sociologically it's just typically a, a, a horrendous one. Uh, then moving down to gay or lesbian relations, that's a seven percentage points decrease over one year from 71% saying it is okay uh, in 22 to 64% saying it is okay It is okay in 23. The death penalty is up five points over 12 months from 55 percentage points to 60 percentage uh, points. Uh, and uh, abortion has not moved. It's 52%, which is basically how it's been for almost, for as long as I can remember, where the population is heavily polarized on that issue. No surprise then that the GOP does not benefit from its hardcore anti-abortion wing causing problems in uh, a general election cycle. Uh, th then there is the issue of married men and women having an affair. Uh, it actually has become more acceptable to the tune of three percentage points, going up from 9% to 12% over a single year and uh suicide has become less acceptable it's gone from 22 percent last year to 20 percent this year uh pornography has gone from 41 percent last year to 39 percent this year uh and medical testing on animals i mean there's other stuff but this is all i'll get to uh, has gone from 52% to 48%, a four percentage point decrease. Uh, actually, there is something else I have, to, I have to deal with here. Doctor-assisted suicide has gone down from 55 to 53. Uh, and cloning humans has uh, actually, this might sound strange, gone up a percentage point from 11% to 12%. So more people now say, say it's acceptable than they did uh, last year. Uh, now, we are going to get to the morality of same-sex relations. But Keith, anything to say about what I just addressed? And I will just throw one thing out there before before you speak. Uh, and obviously, feel free to comment on my opinion here. But uh, seventy percent of the populace thinking it's okay to have a kid out of marriage is very uh, bad for a host of reasons. But it's just bizarre because you think that if divorce is getting less popular and birth control is getting less popular, people would have more of a problem with having a kid outside of marriage. But uh, they do not, according to Gallup's numbers, uh, even as having an affair between a, a married man and a married woman has become three percentage points more acceptable. Go figure. Anything to say, Keith? 
Um, well, I would get back to what I was saying earlier about demographic change. What I would like to see is a, a parallel study that shows to the degree to which these changes, you know, these slight drops in favorability of these things that, you know, often traditionally were considered morally unacceptable or whatever, to what degree does that drop correspond with an increase in either the immigrant population or the minority population who on average are more socially conservative than um, the, the general white population? Um, because a lot of the issues that you listed off sound kind of like Catholic issues, you know, suicide, birth control, um, you know, things, things of that nature. Um, we have to remember that Catholics are not often quite, Catholics and, and, and evangelical Protestants have similar moral views, but there's also different areas of focus and emphasis. Um, mm. Catholics tend to be bigger on life-related issues. You know, they're more likely to believe that uh, uh, or, um, that contraception is, is not acceptable, particularly if they're very traditional. Uh, you know, maybe not if they're just a, a nominal, you know, American-style Catholic. But if you're a very traditional conservative Catholic, then you are probably more likely to have a negative view of birth control than a Protestant, would, even an okay. evangelical conservative Protestant. Um, the so. So Catholics often are more moralistic about the, the sanctity of life issues. Um, the, um, on the other hand, Catholics, while they have the similar Augustinian moral code roots in terms of you know, their, their sexual mores, they're often somewhat more tolerant of deviance than that. You know, for example, um, you, you mentioned that approval of extramarital affairs has gone up. Oh. I think that in a Catholic community, if you had an extramarital affair, it would probably be less, it would be more easily tolerated than in an evangelical Protestant community. Even though the evangelical Protestants have lots of extramarital affairs and, and they have a high divorce rate. Um, but I, I do think that um, some of this reflects demographic change. That's, that's just my impression without, this my, my totally unscientific educated guess is that some, this, some of these changes reflect demographic change um, primarily the growth, growth of uh, the percent of the population that's either minority or immigrant or both. Uh, and that in turn reflects changes in religious demographics. Um, you know, in, I, I know in Latin America, I've spent time in Latin America where people are in many ways much more religious than Americans are yeah, um, and, and, and much more uh, conservative about certain things in the sense that abortion, you know, is frowned upon and, and illegal and most uh, Mm -hmm. countries uh American countries and yet if you you know if you're a married man and you keep mistresses on the side you know you may not get a good citizen award for that but nobody really cares it's kind of expected you know or if you're a young woman or, or certainly if you're a man and, and you have sex outside of marriage well okay you know whatever you know we'd rather you didn't do that or, you know whatever uh, you know, if you're a what if you're a young woman and you had a child out of wedlock, well, at least you'd have abortion. I mean, you know, uh, so good for you. You're upholding the sanctity of life, like Lauren Bober. You know, she's an example. Yeah. Now, she's she's evangelical, not Catholic, but, but that's what she did. You know, her 17 year old son, you know, had uh, impregnated his 15 year old girlfriend or something. And she's like, this shows we are we conservatives are pro life. You know, this is our our trailer park family values. <laughs> um, so um, so the, that's the immediate surface impression I get of this data without you know, just, just looking at it on a surface level and you know not having anything, any scientific thing to measure it by, but just you know, 
uh, in my educated guess is that as the minority populations and immigrant populations grow, that's reflecting attitudes about moral issues because many of those populations are in fact more socially conservative, but in a somewhat different way than uh, your, your standard white Protestant Americans are. You know, in, in Latin America, they were they were more. Um, they it took them longer to start introducing gay marriage and things sure. like that. At the same time, being gay wasn't quite the taboo it, it was in America. It was just more of a thing of, you know, just don't throw it in everybody else's face. You know, if you're going to do that, do it on the side. You know, it's like, you know, we're not going to put you in prison for it. You know, we're not going to ostracize you from society for it. But we, we just want you to kind of, you know, it, it, being open to gay was, uh, was considered unseemly, but not criminal or, you know, or, or mortal sin or something like that. And, I, and I, that's what some of the data you're reading all kind of reflects that. It reflects the kind of view of moral norms that I would find in Latin America. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I'm sorry, go ahead. Were you saying something? No, no. <laughs> Got it. And uh, Americans' views of the morality of same-sex relations, 2001 to 2023. Obviously, I'm not going to go through the whole thing year by year, but I will say that it dropped in 2023 to 64% from 71% in 2022. So that is a seven percentage point drop. And uh, in 2001, obviously when this began, it was at 40%. uh, And in 2013, it was at 59%. So right now it's only 5% higher than it was a decade ago. Uh, And uh, yet uh, it was at 71% last year. And there is an interesting jump between 2012 and 2013. It went up from 54 to 59%. Obviously, that's a five percentage point jump. Uh, So it's it's interesting. And it took two years between 2016 and 2018 for it to climb from 60 to 67 percentage points, uh, whereas you had this seven percentage point drop in one year alone between 22 and 23. So it's interesting to me that you would see this drop. Uh, it, it is rather unexpected. Uh, and I'll get into the partisanship of this momentarily. My perspective, as I shared on Twitter, is that the whole thing with the trans rights, whatever, uh, is bleeding over into other matters of non-heterosexual rights activism. And people are beginning beginning to paint with a broad brush because the trans movement has been so aggressive and over the top. uh, And the opposition to it now is much more vocal and organized than it ever has been. So you see this uh, thing where people just look at anything non-heterosexual and they say, bad. Uh, Definitely, they're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. But uh, I'm not surprised to see it considering how uh, radical the trans movement has grown. I mean, it wasn't the trans movement wasn't even a thing about 10 years ago. Uh, and then it became a thing in the mid-2010s. And then it, it, it just skyrocketed basically from 2000 and about 17 uh, onward. Uh, and so for people to now be very skeptical of it is no shock, uh, but for them to look at anything not heterosexual uh, because of their disgust with the trans thing uh, is no shock either. Uh, it's 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 something else. It really is. Anything to say about the situation, Keith? Yeah, well, aside from the demographic issues that I mentioned earlier that I think potentially, just as a hunch, might be playing a role in this, um, I think you're right in the sense that, you know, when 
when you in 2012 when you saw that big jump in the number of people that had a favorable view of you know, gay rights or same sex rights or whatever, I think that represented something of a generational slip. Certainly, which where you had uh, shift where you had uh, younger people you know arguing with their parents about you know others should be accepted or something like that. That was the, the kind of the issue back then. You know, you had more gay people coming out of the closet and gays gradually becoming more uh, accepted and, and there's more uh you know, it was a very generational thing in one one sense and, it, and there were and religious issues were involved in that um so i think that the you know the the gay you know the, the sympathy for the gay side or whatever grew significantly but i think you're absolutely right that what we're seeing now is a backlash against certain aspects of that because you know not only is there the trans issue but i think that that now you know the the, the rainbow ideology has kind of become a state religion now you know uh, know, it's uh and and a lot of people are just looking at it like well wait a minute you know does this do i need to have this thrown in my face everywhere i you know do we need to see rainbow flags everywhere like it's the american flag or something you know is this a little too much um I, I think that's probably one thing, you know, I mean, do, you know, do we need to sit through seminars at work about gay acceptance, you know, and that, that kind of, you know, all of that. So I think that's one issue. The, the woke, you know, it's, it's just a backlash against the whole woke phenomena generally, and, and of which the, you know, the rainbow ideology or whatever you call it, the LGBTQ ideologies or movement is part of that. Um, but I do think that the trans thing is probably a big part of that. You know, it's uh, people are looking at it well, like, look, I'm okay with my, you know, my gay cousin or whatever. But you know, some people that want to surgically alter their gender identity—that's, you know, that's just—they think that's either just too weird or it's excessive, or they think it's being pushed too hard. It's being pushed on children, and you know, it's um, so they're they're backing away from that. And you probably—it's causing the sexual minority populations generally to be painted with a broad brush. You know, it's like. Because yeah, to a lot of you know straight people, trans is just a variation of gay or something like yeah. that. Um, so, uh, so I, yeah, I, I do. I, I'm sure that's a backlash against this, against the woke ideology on one hand, and against the trans movement on the other. And uh, Americans' views of the morality of same-sex relations by political party figures are the percentage who say gay or lesbian relations are morally acceptable. Uh, This is intriguing. 79% of Democrats say these relations are morally acceptable, but that's a decrease from last year when it was at 85 percentage points. So it's a decrease of six percentage points among Democrats within 12 months' time. Independents actually think it's more acceptable by one point this year. 73% say it's acceptable, whereas 72% did last year. But that is a decrease from 2021 when 20, uh, excuse me, when 74% of independents said it was acceptable. So it's actually gone down over two years' time. Uh, now, among Republicans, here's where it really drops. Uh, in 2022, 56% of Republicans, which was the all time high, said gay or lesbian relations were morally acceptable. Uh, That was a a five percentage point increase over 2021. And in 2020, it was also 51%, so it was quite stable. But now it's dropped from 56% last year to 41% this year. That's uh, a 15 percentage point decrease, which to me is shocking. Uh, I I definitely do not expect to see that coming. But at the same time, the GOP now is more secular than ever. It has less uh, people in it than ever before. 
who are interested in what one would call Christian conservative politics, and yet one sees this uh, profound decrease. And I just think it has to be because of this whole trans thing and people are mixing up all non-heterosexual interests in the transvestite, whatever the hell it is. Uh, and that it caused a 15 percentage point drop. But also, it must be reiterated among Democrats, a 6 percentage point drop, which is not uh, nothing. <laughs> so it's, it's really uh, something else to see how this functions. I, I hope this does not lead uh, the GOP back to, say, George W. Bush era of, you know, gay baiting and this and that and the other thing. That was definitely something that, uh, even though I've never been, to say the least, enamored of gay of the gay rights uh, activist uh, group or, you know, whatever the hell one want to call it, that was still very, uh, you know, when the GOP was in that shrub junior mode, it was very crass and uh, uncomfortable. Uh, I would rather everybody just get along. Uh, and if they have same sex attraction, then whatever, as long as nobody's throwing anything in someone else's face. And that goes for heterosexuals too. Uh, you know, uh, it, it's, it's, to me, it's really tasteless. If you think a gal is attractive, that's something you believe and you might communicate to her, but you're not going to make it your public persona and then engage in politics on that basis. I would expect homosexuals to do much the same. And I think it's a great way for everyone to get along regardless of who they're attracted to. Uh, but obviously uh, things are changing and this 15 percentage point decrease among Republicans with regard to the acceptability of, of the morality of same-sex relations is massive, but so is the decline among Democrats, six points. That to me was even more shocking than the decline among Republicans because you would think it would continue rising among Democrats as the parties become more polarized ideologically. Uh, but uh, no, that's not the case. Keith, anything to say about this? Well, one thing I think is probably fueled that is in the age of Trump, uh, some of your more liberal Republicans have largely left the party and become independents, which would explain the lack of shift uh, among independents. Also, some of your more uh, anti-woke Democrats have left their party and, and become independents. Um, so I, I think that people who hold to the you know, sexual mores of uh, you know, a decade or so ago, um, they're probably the ones that are primarily in the independent camp now. Um, the the um, the decline uh, of you know moral libertinism, or whatever you want to call it, among Democrats, I think it gets back to what I was saying about uh, I think the as the minority populations are an increasingly larger share of the uh, Democratic Party's voter base, that that may actually have the effect of making the Democrats, you know, the general opinion among Democrats, more conservative in many ways than minority and immigrant populations. Um, the, um, so yeah, I mean, I, th I think that that's, that shows why there's not, not much, much change among independents because the people with yesterday's norms are now independent. You know, Democrats are moving right because them of demographic change and, and anti-woke people leaving. And then, uh, um, and then, uh, the same is true on the Republicans. I think the, the most conservative people, you know, even if they're not religious conservatives, they're just more personally or socially conservative, and there is there is a such thing as that too. Uh, you know, there are plenty of people who are socially conservative who are not religiously conservative. Uh, uh, in fact, I think that would ex explain a lot of the issues with abortion now. 
African because we haven't really seen an anti-abortion sentiment rising significantly. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, even with some of these other changes you're talking about. Uh, so you may have more and more people saying, well, you know, yeah, I'm okay with the uh, you know abortion rights within limits, you know, but you know, not not public gay sex and parades and, and things like that. You know? and so that just seems to be how that's playing out. Yeah, personally, I, I mean, if, if I could have it, I, I, I would very much, I would not mind things going back to where there was no uh, Hodges ruling, but yet Roe v. Wade were still in force. That, that would certainly be, uh, I could live with that very happily, but at the same time, I'm not animated by a hatred of the gays or anything like that. I do want everyone to, to get along, uh, but I, nowadays, unfortunately, with this culture war stuff, uh, people tend to focus on these hot button issues and they do throw these issues out there in an ostentatious fashion and that produces even more division which certainly explains some of what we're seeing in public opinion keith before we go uh there is something definitely worth bringing up here given what we have discussed uh, i'm sure you've heard about it but in hamtramck michigan which is a, a, just outside of detroit uh or actually detroit surrounds it uh so everyone wants to put that whatever uh <laughs> the city uh, just banned the pride flag on uh, its premises. It could not ban the flag for people to display uh, on private property, but it did display ban the pride flag being displayed on public property. And for those who don't know, Hamtramck used to be this uh, white ethnic, specifically Polish enclave, uh, and now it, it's, it's majority Muslim. Uh, like a lot of Metro Detroit, Hamtramck has seen a tremendous degree of Muslim immigration, uh, although Hamtramck unquestionably is at the epicenter of it. So uh, Hamtramck, needless to mention, does vote Democratic. But all the same, you see this pride flag being banned there on public property. Uh, and if this were a white, conservative, Christian, obviously Republican community that had done this, the media would have been up in arms. People would have been, you know, foaming at the mouth, acting like rabid dogs. But uh, because it was uh, a Muslim community doing this, apparently, I mean, the, the, the left is still a bit peeved, but I think it's sort of at a loss as to how to deal with this. And this issue uh is an example of what you were talking about where there are these social issue related changes in opinion among uh democrats and they're going to have to figure out how to address this as the years pass yeah um i've had this debate with progressives for years probably about 20 years uh or i've told them that the larger and more influential the islamic uh, population demographic becomes uh, the more that they're going to uh, push for socially conservative policies about a lot of things. Um, I actually first started to notice this back in the early 2000s, about 20 years ago. Uh, when I was living in Holland, um, there was a, an assassination uh, of a guy who led an anti-immigration um, party. Uh, I remember and, that, yeah. Pim Fortune, I believe. Yeah, yeah Pim Bertuan, and he... Uh, Pim Fortuyn was was uh, considered a right wing fascist, but he was actually a gay liberal who objected uh-huh. to uh, uh, Islamic immigration because of their homophobia. Uh, and the person who assassinated him was not a Muslim; it was actually some animal rights fanatic who was mad because the guy wanted was money for prime minister and he was going to try to repeal some animal rights law or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but I I. I when that happened, though, I remember thinking, well, you know, he, he had a point. I mean, the larger the larger your Islamic population is, 
because Muslims worldwide are quite conservative. Uh, now they're, I mean, they're certainly liberal Muslims, and they're you know Muslims who are only Muslims in name only, uh, as there is in any religion. But worldwide, though, Muslims do tend to be very conservative compared to some other uh, communities. So, um, and I, I thought at the time, well, yeah, he had a point. I mean, the larger the Islamic population is going to it becomes, the more you're going to have that. You're going to have you know Muslims exercising political influence and, and often publishing pushing for socially conservative policy, particularly on things like homosexuality. Uh, and, I, and I remember you know, back in the George W. Bush era, I used to tell uh, uh, liberals and leftists, I said, well, look, if you think the American religious right is bad, wait until you see the Islamic right. Um, and, uh, and of course, they would get offensive and get offended and say, well, that's racist. And you know, I'm like, no, I'm just telling you that this is what huh, you know, large numbers of Muslims believe. And if they were influential in this country, this is what you would see, because I saw it in Europe. Uh, and uh, and sure enough, we're, we're at that point now. We're at the point where there are some communities uh, locally in the United States, at least, that where uh, Islamic people are influential to the point that they can exercise uh, influence over policy. Uh, and you see that. I mean, uh, it's a, like you were saying, I mean, this is no different than if some white, you know, Protestant, evangelical, conservative community said, no, no rainbow flags here. Uh, and if that happened, you know, it would be considered, uh, you know, the media, MSNBC would be going 24-7 about how we're now in a handmaid's tale and mm-hmm. taking over America and all that kind of stuff, you know, which I guess they believe that Muslims no longer come conservative or no longer conservative when they come to America. It's, but it's only those Muslims over there in Afghanistan that are, you know, homophobic or misogynistic, you know, once they come here, you know, they magically transform into, into the good progressives. Uh, but, uh, but, but that is an interesting phenomenon. Um, and in fact, I think that may even in fact be the future of social conservatism in the United States. It may be that uh, social conservatism will often be led by uh, you know, people who are you know, from recent immigrant communities or you know, where social conservatism or religious conservatism is more commonplace, even as the white evangelical Protestant uh, conservatism seems to be decreasing. You know, I also, I think a lot of conservatism in the future is just going to be transgressive conservatism. Absolutely. It's going to be, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, you know, it, it's going to be, oh, you thought that was politically incorrect. Well, how's this? You know, it, it's, uh, which really isn't conservatism. I mean, conservatives typically, you know, real conservatives tend to value stability and, and you know, and, you know, order and things like that, not, not just being transgressive to be transgressive. But it's interesting how the impact of some of these changes in society is, is making conservatism into something transgressive. Uh, I mean, on a more, on a much more extreme version of that is the way you see all these antisocial personalities in, in the neo-Nazi movement and that kind of stuff. I mean, there, these are people that the, you know, the original Nazis would have wanted nothing to do with. Uh, yeah, but it's you know it's sort of like you know because that's such an extreme taboo to be a Nazi. You know you have all these you know antisocial people and you know borderline personalities who say you know put on their splash and that kind of stuff. But you know but but woke is is causing people to become conservative for that those kinds of reasons as well. I mean I'm not saying conservatives are Nazis, but it's uh, you know it's a similar psychology though not as extreme. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, where this goes will be very interesting indeed. That's uh, putting it mildly. But uh, Keith, now unfortunately we are going to depart. Uh, it goes without saying that this has been a great conversation. Thank you very much for joining us tonight. Oh, you're very welcome. 
And thank you very much for taking the time to be interviewed for my dissertation. It could not have been completed without your superb insight. Really, greatly, greatly appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome for that as well. Uh, well, <laughs> it's a, it really it was great to include you, and uh, I hope that people read it because I think they could take away a lot from the book. Obviously, the, the book which is published is essentially the dissertation. Uh, even if they're not human resources managers, even if they're not running a business, I think it's fascinating just from a historical perspective. People can learn, I think, quite a bit about human nature from the book. Anyway, uh, but uh, it goes without mention, Keith, I look forward to your return to the program. No doubt there will be plenty of interesting stuff for us to discuss next time. Okay. And everyone, thank you very much for having tuned in. I hope you enjoyed the program as much as Keith and I did. Please stay safe, be well, and cheers. Why is it so hard to retain talent? This question haunts businesses. Conventional wisdom and much-touted innovation never solved the riddle of rampant employee transients. However, there is a method which proves itself efficient generation after generation. This approach is far from groundbreaking, yet has received so little attention that it might as well be. Some of those who worked closest to Queen Elizabeth II remained on staff for over 60 years. Otherwise, her household enjoyed a rate of labor retention which vastly exceeded the U.S. average. Find out about Her Majesty's pursuit of workplace excellence in my latest book, Follow the Leader, What the Business World Can Learn How Queen Elizabeth Managed and Served Others. Available now on Amazon. Just type in Joseph Cotto and follow the leader. It may be what you need to take your business to the next level.